This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley's meat sticks have been a lifesaver during this hot summer. Since they're shelf stable, I always have three Paleo Valley meat sticks in my bag at all times. It's also been perfect for my boys' lunch boxes. I love Paleo Valley's grass finished beef sticks and pasture raised turkey sticks because they support US family farmers that focus on regenerative agriculture. These meat sticks are from animals that have never been fed grains, soy, corn, or GMOs and have never been given antibiotics. The spices in these meat sticks are also 100% organic. The sticks come in five different flavors, and my favorite is the original beef stick, and my boys love the teriyaki beef sticks and the original pasture raised turkey stick. Paleo Valley's meat sticks are a perfect snack and, frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Each stick is about $2 with our discount code, and it comes in a 10 pack bag. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.comslash CATG and use code CATG to get 15% off your first order. Thanks for listening and supporting the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Laura and I are just going to be talking really candid. This is what this podcast is all about. It's one thing to say, I want to eat something else that's not meat. It's a whole other thing to say, you need to eat something else that's not meat. If you notice that you're jumping from diet to diet, at a certain point, you have to wonder the only common denominator is me. Get outside, go for a walk,、yeah. breathe、yeah. some fresh air, and stay happy and healthy and, and take care of yourselves. Welcome to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Get ready for some real talk with your hosts, Judy Cho and Laura Spath. Welcome back to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. My name is Laura Spath, and I am joined by my friend and co host, Judy Cho.、Uh, today, we want to take a deeper dive into glucose and blood sugar and insulin and like, talk about the differences between them, talk about you know, what's normal. A lot of times in the carnivore space, I think you know, we, there's a misconception about glucose in general, there's just some myths I think we want to address. You know, context for your glucose and insulin makes such a big difference.、Um, and there's just a lot of things I think that need to be discussed with some nuance. And that's what I, I think why Judy and I think this podcast is so important and why we,、um, we, we have an opportunity here to discuss nuance. It's not about posting your blood sugar numbers and letting that be the marker for your health. Like we talk all the time about how. Everything is about a big picture and context. And I think we want to spend some time today talking about that. I also think that the words, I don't know if you have thoughts initially, Judy, but like the words glucose and blood sugar and insulin are really all thrown around interchangeably.、Um, and I don't know if there's a way that you can kind of explain the differences of those. A lot of people. Will measure glucose as a sign of metabolic syndrome or metabolic health. And it's true because when our blood sugar is imbalanced,、uh, we have a hormone called insulin that is released by the pancreas to then support the blood sugar to go or the sugar from our foods that we eat that are in our bloodstream to go down so that we don't have a adverse event in our health. So there's a very tight level of blood sugar that needs to, or sugar that needs to be in the blood. And anything beyond that or below that, it's either like hyperglycemia or hypoglycemia. And it's an easy way to track your general health on a day to day basis at home. You can get a continuous glucose monitor, those CGMs where you put it on your arm. I have one right now. And while that is a good measure of health, it is not the only measure. So I think when we just throw around the markers, Oh, my glucose in the morning, my fasting glucose is X, or my A1C over three months is Y. We don't think about the nuance with if you are a carnivore eating all meat or mostly meat versus someone that's ketogenic that's trying to have higher ketones. So, all of these nuances actually matter. And so, I think when we are adjacent to a keto diet, we start thinking our blood glucose markers are higher. And unhealthy than a person that's ketogenic or maybe even on a standard American diet. But there is so much context and nuance to that that I think there's so much confusion in the carnivore community. Yeah, absolutely. And there's this myth that like lower 
glucose or lower blood sugar is always better. Or like there's this competition of like the lower, the better, uh, or the lower, the healthier. And that definitely is not the case. Um, Obviously there's a limit to where high is negative. And I think that's where people are like diabetic, you know, Chris, I think you hear about people who go to the hospital that are having, um, severe diabetic reactions and their glucose could be in the hundreds, like 400 or 300 or two. Those are all like severely, uh, untreated diabetics. Um, and then there's, so there's like an obvious diabetic number, but then there's a, a little bit of a gray area, um, that, kind of depends on your context, which we want to get into today. When you're looking at your insulin numbers, those are only things that can be measured by like a blood work from a doctor. Is that correct? Not just your right. day-to-day glucose monitor? Yeah, they don't They don't have the marker. That's, I think the next thing that they are working on is it's really not what we're, we are really not measuring glucose. What we're trying to see is what our insulin is doing, because based on how high your glucose is, that will reflect um, ideally how your insulin is and the more your insulin spikes and the more it's going through these roller coaster spikes, the less healthy you are and insulin resistance causes a lot of inflammation and disease. So th- yes, there is no way to track insulin. I think they're working on it, but it hasn't been um, from like day to day yet without a, yeah. let me ask you kind of a silly question. What's the difference between A1C and your insulin numbers? If you get blood work done, A1C is just a average of how long your I think blood it's cells, hemoglobin. right? Your red blood cells. Yeah. So it's the average of how long your red blood cells live. And for, and then there's even context with that. So vegans tend to, maybe you can talk about the Bigman stuff, but generally speaking, A1C is just tracking how long your red blood cells live. And you typically have sugars attached to the red blood cells. And that's why we are measuring that just as a byproduct to see how your sugar is doing. And then in terms of insulin, you are just tracking again that hormone. So it's the hormone that's released when you have too much blood sugar um, or sugar in your blood. Um, And then it will be released for other things too. But we are tracking insulin to get a pulse on how healthy you are. And then A1C is separate. And for a normal, like a standard American dieter or somebody who's tracking their A1C, typically anything that is above like 5.7 to 6.4 is considered pre-diabetic. And then anything above that is what, like, I just Googled it while we're sitting here. Like, uh, just anything above what's considered like 6.5 and up is considered diabetes. Um, and so this is where, like, I, I think it's important for us to realize, like, what are is the numbers that we measure versus if you're eating a standard American diet? And then how is the context of, like, when we're carnivore? Because um, there is... I think those numbers don't necessarily mean the same thing depending on what you're eating. So this is what Judy mentioned. Um, Dr. Ben Bickman talks a lot about A1C and red blood cells and insulin resistance. Um, he has a book that he wrote. What's the, do you know the name of his book? Yeah. Why, why we get sick. Yeah. So it's a really important book. He was speaking at low carb, uh, Boca that I was at in January. And I think we, in our little recap episode, we might've touched on it, but you know, my question to him was this exact question. Like there's this thing that's touted where we focus on the lower, the blood sugar, the better in the carnivore community. And why is it that a lot of us have uh, blood sugar that tends to go up slightly, meaning it's in the mid nineties in the mornings, or it like sticks around in the nineties, or for some people, maybe even it's a hundred. And then our A1C, like when you initially go carnivore, your A1C tends to drop. Chris, myself, my mom, like anybody who has a high A1C, who is insulin resistant, who has, you know, high blood sugar, we go carnivore or low carb and our A1C drops pretty low and rapidly into a very healthy range. But then the longer that you're carnivore, a lot of long-term carnivores tend to see that A1C go tick back up slowly again. So for Chris, it went down to 4.9. First of all, it was like 11.6, I think something like that, which is severely diabetic and on carnivore, alone after getting off all his medications, it was down to 4.9. Well, now it went up to then eventually like 5.2 and five, you know, 5.3. And now in, he had it checked recently, it's up to like 5.5. That arc and the little rebound is very typical for most long-term carnivores, especially somebody like Chris who eats a tremendous amount of protein and steak. And Dr. Bickman's thought process is that your 
getting almost like a false high A1C because your red blood cells are so healthy that they're lasting longer and they're turning over slower, which is why you're getting slightly higher A1Cs. And I know other people like Sean Baker, um, Ken Barry are all having the same thing with their A1C as they post their, their numbers. Uh, And on the contrary, he talked about the fact that vegans tend to have this false low A1C because their red blood cells are turning over so quickly that it's making their A1C 4.5, 4. You know, like really low. When in reality, it doesn't indicate what their health is, like how healthy they are. Yeah, I just pulled up my blood work from April of 2023, and my A1C was 5.3. I guess the average glucose is saying it's 105, which when I do my fasting blood glucose in the morning, or I use my CGM, it's always in the low to mid nineties. And, but even with that number, my ketones, I'll still have some amount of ketones. Maybe it's between 0.5 and one, or it depends. I think what happens in our community is that we are adjacent to a ketogenic diet and keto diets typically say don't have more protein than 60 ish grams. And so when you eat that low of protein, your ketones are going to go up and you will be burning fat more, I guess more, you'll be releasing more ketones and fatty acids, but it is not the same as when we're eating 140 grams of protein and um, and then our blood sugar goes up. A lot of people in my community or in our community will say, well, I know that Dr. Bickman says that, but that still is not comforting for me. So I am right. going to reduce my protein. But this is very similar to how cholesterol can be finagled by if you want to make sure your cholesterol is lower before you go to get tested, people can eat a bunch of carbs before they go. And in the same vein, when you want to reduce your car, um, your glucose, if you eat a bunch of carbohydrates, eventually, because it's getting used, it'll get shuttled into the cells and your blood sugar will go down for a little bit after initially it'll stay up because your body's not used to all that sugar that you're consuming. Right. But over time, your blood sugar will go down, assuming that you were never diabetic. And, and then people that will join Ray Pete or even like Dr. Paul Saladino will say, look, my blood sugar is going down, even though I'm eating all this fruit. And it's, Well, yeah, because you're using it and now your body is having to clear the blood, the sugar in the blood constantly. Whereas for our bodies, because we're just eating meat and not adding sugar, the body is somewhat okay. It's not alerting insulin as much to come clear the sugar because it's so stable all the time. And what I see on my CGM is no matter how much it's in the 90s and people think that's an ugly number because, oh, you're close to being pre-diabetic. No, my blood sugar barely goes up and down, maybe by 20 points throughout the whole day. And there should be some movement. If it doesn't move at all, that's a little weird too. But if we think about how insulin is the real marker that we're looking at when it comes to glucose, we need to make sure that insulin is properly working so that our glucose gets cleared in the blood. And if it's not working, your insulin's going to go up because it's not doing its job and your body's going to try to release more hormones of insulin. And then your blood sugar is also going to go up. And that's when things break. If our blood sugar is constantly at the 90s and then you check your insulin and it's not really above five, then you're okay. I And if you check other markers, your A1C and it's still within 5.7 and below, I think you're okay. And then the other marker we could talk about is C-peptide, which is a more definitive marker to check than even insulin because insulin moves around so much. But I just think that we are chasing the wrong thing because I can assure you in seeing over a thousand carnivore clients, the people that have the blood sugar in the 70s are the people that are under eating. And I think that's where, like you said, your glucose should move slightly throughout the day. Like, you know, there's a lot of people yes. um, on Instagram or TikTok or something that have the where they eat something and then they show you their CGM, like how much of a spike it is. And then that deems like whether or not that food is healthy or not, which is a little like there's so much context that's needed for that. So I don't really necessarily love those tests, but it doesn't. I think it also perpetuates this idea that your glucose should never move. It's not about right. the fact that it shouldn't ever move. It's that you shouldn't have these massive spikes that then take a very long time to come back down again. You know, um, wasn't it Dr. Sivas who went through this phase before saying how you needed some type of spike to ensure that your, you know, insulin doesn't go into atrophy and that you're keeping your body being able to function and be able to have an insulin spike. And so giving a little bit, eating a whole bunch of protein 
right? Like if Chris sits down and eats two pounds of steak in one sitting, which I don't, I couldn't do anymore. His glucose is going to go up, but because right. he's healthy, it's going it, to within an, a normal amount of time, usually two hours, it's going to come back down again to what his baseline is. And that's almost what you want to see more, not as much about not having a spike, but about the fact that it's going to come back down to baseline um, within that two hour time frame. That's going to show more like your overall, like how responsive is your body to that? But I agree with you. It, to me, if I'm under eating protein, the only time that my glucose goes really low and my ketones go really high is if I am fasting. And then to keep it there, I almost have to under eat. I can't eat a lot in one sitting or eat multiple times a day uh, and keep my glucose really low. It's going to naturally be like in the 90s if I'm eating an adequate amount of protein in a day. Yeah. I mean, protein is insulogenic and I'm not saying so if you have insulin resistance, don't eat protein, but it is. I mean, if in Carnivore Cure, I put a graph from a study. It shows that carbohydrates are the most insulogenic, and then it's protein, and then it's fat. And it's not like fat doesn't have an insulin response. They all do, but they have it at different times and at different extremes. So you don't want your blood sugar to spike like 100 points. It is normal to have your blood sugar go up after a a meal. Mine does too, maybe 20 points. You don't want it to go ideally up more than 20, 30 points. And like you said, it should come right back down. So your body's having a healthy insulin response that comes through protein. Um, and then your body is clearing it and putting it in your tissue and cells, etc. And when it comes to carbohydrates and sugar, that spike is much greater. So it could be 100 milligrams per deciliter amounts of sugar that's going up and then it would have to come back down. And that's where too much of that is too much stress on insulin, too much stress on your glucose, on your pancreas. And that causes that constant blow of excess sugar in your system is what causes diabetes long term. So I think when you we are in the 90s and even high 90s or even low hundreds and people start worrying, that's not the right thing to be worrying about. What you want to worry about is how does your spikes look? If it's just 20, 30 points, that's probably okay. Look at your insulin marker, check your C-peptide. If it's under two, that's a good sign. I mean, sometimes your insulin will be higher than five and it's the context. Your insulin moves a lot because it's a hormone, just like cortisol is really hard to track. If anyone has ever done a cortisol test, they'll say, make sure to check at a certain amount of time. You want to do saliva tests morning, day, and evening. You want to do it at a certain part of your cycle. And it's so nuanced because cortisol is really hard to track. And I think in the same vein, insulin is somewhat hard too. And so that's why they track C-peptide, which basically comes out with insulin, but it's a lot more stable of a molecule that you can test that will show that maybe you're not insulin resistant. And I think I've heard Dr. Barry talking a lot about the C-peptide right. number before, like you said, and he, he, that's the thing that he suggests that you get checked, um, to help understand like if you're insulin resistant as well. One thing I want to talk about, or like mention that the nuance in the context that we're mentioning now is for somebody who is been a long-term carnivore. And I would say who's right. like healed and is now seeing their A1C tick back up again. But what I want to touch on is what about somebody who is starting or like been on this journey for six months, they still have 50 to 70 pounds to lose, but their blood glucose is sticking around 120. They've never actually brought it back down. Like they were diabetic. They may have seen their A1C come down from a higher number. And now it's still in like the high fives. Their glucose is still in the one twenties. Like What's happening there that somebody has essentially they've healed, but they're not actually healed all of the way. I think that's a very different person and right. circumstance than somebody like Chris, who had everything go all the way back down to baseline and is now after years seeing things slightly tick back up again. And I think they should be handled differently, which is what I, I think we should discuss. It really depends on the context. So if that person came to us and their blood sugar is only at 120 and they came from 300, I'm okay with that drop, right. right? Because they're healing. But let's say they were at 150 and now they're just at 120 six months in. I still think it's healing because if it's you're no longer on medications or you were never on medications and you've seen a blood sugar drop, I think the question will be, well, let me see how your C-peptide's doing, how your insulin's doing. And if the insulin is like 10 and your C-peptide's like four, then yes, they are still insulin resistant. So the question then becomes, let's fine tune your macros, right? So maybe 
if you're snacking or grazing throughout the day, even if it's not big spikes in your insulin response, you're still giving an insulin response every time you put food in your mouth. So for that specific person, I'd have them get on maybe three meals a day if they were eating five or having three meals plus snacks. If they were already doing three meals, then I would try to do, let's do two meals and assuming they have good gut function to break down the protein and et cetera. And then we could track from there. I'd probably have them get on a CGM and see, let's see what is causing your blood glucose to go up or are you having issues throughout the day? Is it stress? And uh, we can track many different things, but that's the way that I would approach it. And then over time, obviously, fasting is obviously a mechanism we can use. It really just depends on the person, their age, et cetera. That person to me is was so insulin resistant that they are not healing as quickly. And it may take two years for them right. to start healing their pancreas. I mean, some people suffer from pancreatitis, which is where your pancreas isn't functioning properly. And if that happens, there's no way that their insulin production will be as ideal as somebody that's not even um, sick with metabolic syndrome. Yeah, we have to remember too, how long did we spend being sick and unhealthy and then trying to reverse that? Like we need to give ourselves some patience. You know, the first time you lose weight, it happens a lot quicker than you gain weight and lose it and gain weight. And it gets harder and harder every time because you're putting your body through so much more and age and your hormone levels and just your overall stress, like all of those things have a lot to do with it. Um, I think there's a lot of, you know, I think like, I, like you mentioned, there is an element of people who cannot lower that baseline glucose and without some type of fasting. Um, it's not the first thing that I would do. Like Judy said, there's your health, your hormones, your overall, like there's other factors that decide like if fasting is the right thing for you to do. And if you should try that, but I think another question that I get a lot is why is my glucose spiking when I'm fasting? Um, so they'll do like a 24 hour fast and they'll see like a big spike, or even if they do a 48 hour fast, they'll see a big spike in there. And that's just because your body still has that deep stored sugar, right? There's sugar stored in your organs and your muscles, like all over your body. And your body is trying really hard to burn that out. So when you're fasting, that's your body kind of tapping into that deep stored sugar. Yeah. And it might also be muscle memory, right? So if at a certain time you ate and your body has learned that the insulin has to be released Mm -hmm. then, or maybe while you're fasting, you're stressed and cortisols because it's imbalanced is causing excess glucose to come out of storage. And it just takes time to rebalance things. If whether it was the pancreas that was imbalanced, releasing insulin, your adrenals are imbalanced, releasing cortisol, all of them play a big role in trying to keep the sugars in your blood balanced. And if it hasn't been balanced for a long time, for all of that to orchestrate properly, you need to have the right diet, but also it's time that it needs to heal. You need less cheat days and less days of grazing so that your pancreas feels less less stress on it. And we have to also remember that the pancreas is not just insulin. It also releases most of our digestive enzymes. So if you have bad gut function and you are diabetic, it's just double whammies on the pancreas to do a lot more things that it's not able to do properly. And for all of that to heal, it just takes a little bit more time. I think it's crazy that all other diets say, look at that, your carnivore is making you more insulogenic, it's causing your blood glucose to go up. So therefore, add more glucose, like add more carbs, so you can see your blood glucose go down. And yes, you are going to see it go down because you're going to start stimulating your pancreas to release even more insulin and it will start pulling more sugar from the blood. But logically, how does that make sense? If we are scared, we have so much sugar in our blood when we don't eat sugar. So the answer then is to add sugar to our diet. Like, let's just pause and think about that logic for one second. That's so, no, it's so smart. (laughs) I haven't like thought about it in that way, but it's like, it, it makes so much sense, but it's interesting though, because the fruit and meat or fruit and meat and honey carnivores show that, right? They show the right. fact that then they add fruit and honey and their A1C goes down and their baseline glucose goes down. But then, like you said earlier, where's the arc? Like what happens now that it's been a year or two since they've been doing that? Where is that rise back up that's happening It's interesting. I know somebody in this um, space who is an influencer and is the first person to like preach and preach and preach that this is what all of these things that we're saying, they completely agree with. 
but then their spouse is seeing their A1C go up. And then for the first time now, they're like, it's still hard. It's hard to buy into this. That's also my point is it's one thing to stand and say that, like, this is the science, this is the facts, but then it's like your own spouse or your own family member. And then it's still like, you still question it. It doesn't mean that it's easy to just go all in and forget and ignore. And, you know, there's just, it still does make you nervous because of what society is telling you. And this marker, when your doctor gives it back to you is like in red on the paper, like that still is unsettling, but yet yeah. what you're explaining is so logical. Yeah. So, I mean, that's where I would get a CGM. I would do a full panel, a comprehensive panel, more than what standard care would offer. And then you have the arguments of the C-peptide of the insulin. I mean, most doctors don't know what C-peptide is. You can do other inflammatory marker tests and just see how you're doing. And I think when it comes to a lot of these repeaters or the pro-metabolic or the people that are adding the fruit and honey, part of the difference or nuance is that we don't know how much they're making themselves sick because a lot of the fruits are more fructose than glucose. And it is a different type of sugar that is more sticky. And we don't like a lot of stickiness in our blood because it just starts sticking to other things and organs and causes damage. That's what they call glycation. And fructose is very sticky. If you think about honey, so imagine that going through your system And then when things start sticking together, when you're constantly eating those kinds of foods, like think about how sticky corn syrup is. Mm -hmm. And then I think about that going in your system. And so when we see their blood sugar, yes, maybe they're having some amount of glucose, but a lot of their sugars is through fructose. And that only directly, mostly impacts your liver. So the question always is becoming, are you becoming or suffering from fatty liver? And we don't even know that it's starting to happen. These are the things that we don't consider when we're wearing a CGM that doesn't track fructose. Yes, some fructose and glucose can convert to one another. But generally speaking, if I eat honey, it does not reflect how much sugar is coming in my body. It is only tracking how much glucose is in the honey. And the fructose part of it, which is more than the glucose side, is actually just hitting my liver and it's becoming undetected. And so it's these little things that no one considers when they're like, fruit is so healthy. Look at it. It didn't raise my blood sugar. Yeah, if you eat a mango that is mostly fructose and glucose, yeah, it's not going to probably show that much. That's crazy. How would you then, what are the markers that test your liver to show whether or not you're having fatty liver? So there's three enzymes that most uh, doctors test. It's the GGT. They're all enzymes that are released by liver. And too much of it is a sign that you have inflammation in the liver. And the other one is ALT. And the other one is AST. I think it's the ALT when it's above. I don't like seeing it above 35, to be honest. But if it's above that, then it's a sign that there's inflammation in your liver and your liver is just stressed. It could be for other reasons. It could be too much medication. Um, it could be for environmental illness. But most people that have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or fatty liver disease, that marker starts shooting up in terms of enzymes. I heard a podcast too somewhere that was saying that that non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome is like one of the rising, like fastest rising diseases or health issues, complications that we have been experiencing in the last few years. And it simply is just because more and more and more people are becoming diabetic because they're eating so much more sugar and processed foods. uh, And it's just becoming such a bigger problem, especially in the U.S. Yeah, I with SIRS, we do some blood work on children because normally we don't do blood work on children. And I see some of the ALTs imbalanced and it's obviously the diet, right? I mean, I think there is some ALTs that go up with SIRS, but generally speaking, we don't test kids for blood work until, I don't know, maybe they're 16, 18, or if there's an illness in the family. But otherwise, how do you know they have fatty liver that whole time when so much of their food is fructose? It's not even the glucose side of it. So maybe their blood sugar looks normal, but if they're eating lots of snacks that have fructose or corn syrup or high fructose corn syrup or lots of fruits, that's where you don't know if they're getting inundated in their liver um, because we don't do any blood work on them until they're 18 or beyond. That's interesting. That's so interesting. And also I would say that like, any baseline numbers, like say I wanted to go get my kids checked and like just to see what their numbers were, there's not really a baseline to compare them to other kids because like you said, other kids that are getting their blood work done are very sick. There's just not this data of healthy kids that were getting blood work done to check like what is an average healthy kids A1C as they're growing, right? Because we know that 
women who are pregnant and children uh, going through puberty are expected to be insulin resistant because their body is trying to grow very rapidly um, in a short amount of time. And so there's just not a baseline of like healthy kids to test blood work against or to compare it to. Yeah, there's some markers that the like lab core will not give ranges for. So examples for a GFR, which is your kidney filtration, if you're under 18, they won't give you a, if it's in or out as a range. And or maybe they don't even give you a number, I can't recall. But for other markers, they will. So I think when it comes to glucose, because they're so freshly made as humans, their glucose, their pancreas should work efficiently enough. Now, we don't know is 60 a normal range or 70 milligrams per deciliter or 80. Like, that's your right. Like, we don't know for children what is the average range other than knowing that they shouldn't be pre-diabetic, what range is normal. And we don't know that data because, again, we don't test when it's crazy that so many kids suffer from non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Oh, especially nowadays, the way that childhood yeah. obesity is on the rise and low activity levels among kids where they're eating all this sugar and they're not actually being active enough to burn any of it off again. We see that, uh, you know, time like it's just r- rapidly growing. And I think the impact in our future generations, like we're already starting to see it with the, you know, what is it? Gen Z that's getting older now. I think the fertility problems are going to mm-hmm. expound. Um you know, we're going to continue to see, this is like me going down a crazy rabbit hole, but like, we're going to see birth rates declining and more fertility problems happening. And a lot of that is because when kids are going through puberty and their body is supposed to be at its most fertile, they are very, very unhealthy and insulin resistant. And their bodies are never actually developing into these like fertile beings to begin with. And I think it's going to continue to snowball. Yeah. I mean, First of all, I totally agree with that. I think when your blood sugar is imbalanced, we've talked about this many times about the hormones and the orchestra, your body will always prioritize balancing blood sugar. So then there goes your sex hormones. So if you're a young child and your blood sugar is crazy, well, there goes your testosterone and all the female hormones, which men have some of, but it will become imbalanced and you will get less of it to those things to help you grow and help you become more female or become more male. And then as you get older and you have insulin resistance now, well, there goes you getting pregnant because your body thinks, no, this body can never regulate its sugar. I need to make sure that this body lives and balances blood sugar. There's no way it's going to get pregnant because we cannot hold offspring at this time. And I think that's what's happening. And you just have to wonder, how are we then recommending, because this is such basic biology when it comes to the body and just the regulation of blood sugar and how it's effects on hormone health and sex hormones. How are they recommending us to go low fat when it will absolutely affect your your sex hormones? Well, because then there's medications that they can sell you to balance that. Not only the hormones, which is, I mean, we, who knows what impact that that's having. And we see the younger generations like taking more and more exogenous hormones, whether for their gender that they were born with or to try to change, right? But then we also see this mental health crisis that's happening in the younger generation where how many teenagers are on antidepressants or on some type of medication, hormone medication, or um, something that's all compounding. Like it's, it's, it's wild. I, I mean, I think this is probably the, um, the tinfoil hat side of me, but I do yeah. think there's an attack on marriage. And I, if we all are so sick and unhealthy, we can't even care for a significant other, right? And it's just, we we won't have, we won't get married, we won't have babies, and then it's just depopulation, right? It's just, I don't know, I, I just, it seems so simple to know what the best way to eat is, yet the, the big bosses of the world are saying to eat the exact opposite things. I just can't help but think that it's intentional. And it's not just, I do think a lot of it's pharmaceuticals, right? Because then you do IVF and that's how you could get pregnant that way. And you make $20,000 for every time you do a round. But I also think it's just, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a way that they are trying to depopulate. I mean, I don't know. I know Uh, you, you and I go down a lot of rabbit holes uh, outside of this, but I think a lot of it just has to do with, it's so easy to sell you a prescription and then you have symptoms from that prescription and then they sell you another one to combat those and they sell you. And it's like, it's big business. Um, And the fact that it's all government regulated is where I kind of lose my mind about it because it's not just capitalism, it's not just these pharmaceutical companies selling you something, but it's the regulations that are put in place to almost force that to happen, right? Like, I mean, 
Not to mention, we don't even, we don't, I don't know how we got, we're talking about insulin and now I, I almost just said the vaccines and just canceled, like, you know, not to mention like what's required for kids, um, uh, for them to go to school and play sports or at some point, like for you to go to your job, um, which is what we experienced a couple of years ago. We, as a people, if we are healthier, look. One of the reasons why I like to share about just the diet is if you are red pilled with the diet, then you'll start realizing maybe other things we're injecting our bodies with or mandating through schools or being taught certain things. Maybe it's not correct. I mean, I used to really believe that if it's written in a book, then it is 100% real. And I, I used to believe that because, I mean, why would there be false information in a book? Right. And I realized that books are just everyone's opinions. Um, and some people are just smarter than others or more, I wouldn't say smarter. That's the wrong word. It's more influential than others. Right. But uh, I mean, research, it's just, you can literally buy so much research these days, but yes, uh, researched, influential, you're really good at writing. And hopefully as people eat a carnivore diet and realize that they are healing, that they don't need the diabetic medications or insulin injections, that they don't need a statin. And as they wake up and realize these things, then what else are we being lied to? And these things that are making us depressed because we can live a better life without medications and being sick all the time. Yeah. And I think that's why we get so passionate about this or the fear mongering that happens around like your A1C went up 0.5 and in the carnivore space, because it scares people away from something that we know is so beneficial and can do so much healing for people. And they're getting scared away because they see, you know, somebody's cholesterol go up or they see somebody's, you know, A1C goes up 0.2 after being five years from carnivore, like all of those things. Or then my glucose is in the nineties every day. Like it means I'm unhealthy and I, and I should be scared of that. I need to go back to eating pop tarts. Like, you know, for a lot of people, that's the, that's the leap for me. That would be the leap. I'm going to go back to eating Oreos and Pop-Tarts and ice cream. Like I'm not going to just add an occasional sweet potatoes. Like that's just because, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not about the honey or the fruit. It's about these foods that are addictive. And for most people, it's an all or nothing thing. Um, and I think the people who we talked about this, you know, as we were recapping KetoCon, like just because somebody can eat occasionally some cane sugar and they're healthy and it's something that they can moderate occasionally doesn't mean that most people can do that. Most people are it, these all or nothing things because we're struggling with food addiction and um, it, it's not even a justification to say like, oh, I'll deal with a less optimal a uh, blood glucose because I have to avoid the processed foods. That's how it comes across, but that's not it at all. It's, this is my optimal glucose and here is why. And I can't incorporate these other whole foods or carbs because uh, it, it would cause me to kind of go down a rabbit hole, if that makes sense. If people can add carbs or fruit and honey and more whole foods carbs, and they are doing it by choice, then I have no issue with that, right? Same. It's not a, I have, I need it for thyroid function. Or if, if it's not for any of those things, but I just, I, I just want variety and I can totally right. handle it. I, I totally support Some that. Some people just like vegetables enough to want to have them occasionally. Like, great, do that. Enjoy them. Right. And I think that, but when people get scared into yes. it, where I need to eat carbs for my thyroid function, I need to eat carbs yes. for my cycle, or I need to eat carbs because my blood sugar has gone up too much. And so I'm going to fill myself with more sugar in my blood to then lower it. But the number now looks good. If it's for those reasons, we have to pause. And I think this goes in circles back into all the red pill stuff. But instead of just believing the number or what we deem to be correct or out of range or in range, just think about the logic and does that make sense? Does it make sense to have to eat carbs that are non-essential for your thyroid, for your hormones, and for your blood sugar to be balanced? Because if we think about even 500 years ago, they didn't have blood sugar meters, they didn't have continuous glucose monitors, they didn't have excess exogenous hormones to take, they didn't have thyroid stuff to take, and I'm pretty sure they weren't around a lot of carbohydrates because how many people had an abundance of vegetables and fruits 500 years ago? They were lucky if they had one or two. And so much of the modern plants that we're eating today are man-made 
And right. um, I talk about that in the second book. I, I found a list of all the man-made fruits and vegetables, and it's like literally almost everything. And the even just like, you know, we've talked about this often, but you can't feed like monkeys in the zoo bananas from the grocery store or it will give them diabetes, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the fruits that they are eating now, or even if you're buying organic ones, they're not actually like the naturally grown things that like our ancestors might have had. Our ancestors also didn't have access to them 365 days a year in, in all regions, right? The only food that's a consistent, when people talk about ancestral or whatever, the only food that's consistent that you could access anytime, anywhere in the world is meat, right? That's right. There's nothing else that we need in order to live other than meat. And you and I, this is what we just said. Like, if you want to have something else, great. But I think where we both get dogmatic, I guess is the word. I don't know. It's just saying that like, I need something else for my health. That's not meat. Um, people, I don't care what anybody does. You could do whatever you want, but right. just don't try to fear people into saying that you need something else for your health. That's not meat. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense logically. So Kevin got a year's worth of continuous glucose monitors. And after two times, he's like, I'm done with it. So now we have so many. And so once in a while, I put it on. So right now I have one on. um, And I just purely did it out of boredom. And it's always the same. It just like never moves. And it's kind of boring. Yes, there's like the up 200. But from a, if you see the graph in a full day or 24 hours, it looks like it's barely moving. But it's in the 90s. And so I shared my very first day of it. And I said, I'll share if there's any updates um, or if there's anything interesting. But normally it's just so flatlined, it's not fun to share. And then I got a couple messages saying, oh, my gosh, your blood work is high like other carnivores. How come no one is addressing this, that our blood sugar goes up on this diet and it's not ideal? And again, it's that perspective of I showed you the rest of the graph and it's not really moving. I say that I sleep through the night. My um, menstruation is consistent. I have no hormonal issues. My thyroid, I shared on one of my newsletters recently that all my thyroid markers are in line. I have no sensitivities to dairy and my antibodies for thyroid are non-existent. So I'm not entirely sure what sign that I have, including my blood work. Actually, I did the C-peptide and all of those other markers, but they're all within range. So why should I be worried that my blood sugar is in the 90s? But for that person, that was all they saw. Right. So even with the thyroid, even my hormones, even I don't wake up in the night and et cetera, et cetera. But that's not good enough because my blood sugar is 90s and therefore you are unhealthy. Yeah, it's cra- that's And that's unfortunately because they've seen somebody else sharing something that's lower and then just explaining that they're healthy because of this number. Right. And I think that's also the, the counter. This is my question. Too, but then because- go ahead. No, but if that's happening in carnivore, because I am not an N equals one, what I just shared is N equals one totally, but I have a thousand people's worth right. of data and that subset, I'm telling you, it's high eighties, maybe low hundreds, but anyone that's in the sixties, seventies, even most days, low, low eighties, it's because they're under eating. Maybe they're over exercising, but there is some nuance in their life. That's one making them unhealthy, but it's just the average carnivore I see, they're in the low 90s. And I actually have no idea if the high fat trend is still happening. Like I don't, I haven't heard, like heard anybody sure. mention that in a while. So that 80, 80% fat, if that's still happening or not. But again, that's the under eating of the protein, which is like Judy right. said, insulinogenic, and which is what's also keeping that glucose really low. Um, and I think sometimes this is where in this space, we get a little analysis paralysis where like too much data is just like makes people so obsessed. It's where I get like so crazy, like, about they're they're obsessing over every marker. Like, were you obsessing over these things before, I guess? And so when people hear this episode, I don't want them to run out and get CGMs. I don't want them to check their glucose 10 times a day to see what's happening in the spikes and the rises and all those things. There might be a context where that is important, but let's talk about what to do with, I mean, I think getting blood work once a year is great. You don't need to be getting blood work once a quarter. Like you don't have to be doing all these things, like just check in on some things, get a full panel once a year. And that's plenty. So what are some symptoms that are not just numbers? Like, like you just said, sleeping through the night, like what should we be paying attention to that is not a number um, that kind of helps people to know if their insulin is healthy, if their glucose is healthy, or if 
Like you and I often talk about, don't go looking for problems if there aren't any. If you feel great and everything's going really well, don't go out and like start looking for all these problems, um, you know, other than just like checking in once a year or so. Yeah. So if you think about the afternoon crash that we used to always hear when we were car beaters, so people would get coffee or they would get some like a sugary treat. And that's because your your glucose is dropping, and so you need something. So coffee helps stimulate cortisol, which then causes your blood sugar to go up. And then obviously the carbohydrates make your blood sugar go up. So then you'll feel that sugar high, but then it'll come back down. You'll feel hungry, et cetera, et cetera. The symptoms you would feel when you had good blood glucose would be you obviously have um, consistent energy throughout the day. You don't feel this like anxiety um, like hyperglycemic, um, episodes or hypoglycemia. So you don't feel this like rush of anxiety. And then you feel this shakiness. You don't feel those things. And it's just, you have this consistent energy, consistent mood. You don't, you might get a little bit tired in the afternoon. I mean, if you've been awake for a while, but generally speaking, you don't need a nap after a meal. You're not tired after a meal, generally speaking, and you don't need a nap in the afternoon because all of a sudden your energy is dipping. And if those things are not true for you, then you may be having blood glucose, insulin resistance issues. And then the other thing is, if your blood glucose is very well balanced, it should allow you to sleep through the night because Mm. there is a need in the middle of the night where cortisol kicks in to release some sugar. But when people are very imbalanced, that becomes really imbalanced. And so people wake up multiple times. Now, sometimes it's not about the diet, but generally speaking, if you fix your diet and you eat less sugar and less carbohydrates, all of those things should improve. And when they're not, that's when I would start looking deeper. Yeah. You've mentioned in the past, you don't do uh, one meal a day um, because when you eat that much in one sitting, it makes you crash in the afternoons. And so that's showing that like, because of the symptoms of the fact that you feel like you need a nap in the afternoons, like that is not beneficial for you to eat that much in one sitting. And so even if you're a strict carnivore, you can kind of know based on what Judy has just mentioned, like if you're eating so much that it's causing you to have a glucose spike, maybe you have, you know, two meals a day, or maybe you need a third meal in order to get adequate protein, but having it not be so much that it's causing you to have like this unhealthy spike and crash. Right, right. And it depends. So if you are very insulogenic, I would have you eat less meals in a day because the less meals you have, the body can just go back to homeostasis and there's no tapping into, or there's minimal tapping into Mm -hmm. insulin. Whereas if you are, I mean, it's, it's just this nuanced. I mean, I know Dr. Bright would argue and say, no, if you have five small meals of super high fat, so you can tolerate the fat and fat is less insulogenic, you could still heal that way. And so I think it becomes really individualized at that point. If you are beyond maybe 125, I think even uh, Dr. Bickman said on my interview that he's okay with even 129. I'm not really comfortable with that number, but if you don't really have these big ups and downs or swings in your blood glucose, maybe it's not something you need to worry about. And if you don't have the symptomologies of somebody that's hypoglycemic or hyperglycemic or somebody that has blood sugar imbalances and insulin resistance, then maybe you're okay. And you don't have to worry that your numbers are a little different than somebody that's ketogenic. I also think too, just know the context of like, are you on your way up or are you on your way down? Right. Were your, was your, uh, glucose in the mid eighties for a long time and now it's in the nineties or now it's in the hundreds right. and it's on its way up. Cause then I wouldn't be as worried about it as if, or like maybe wouldn't even make as many changes as if it used to be 300 and then it was 150 and now it's just kind of stuck at 120. Like you're on your way down. You're still healing. Like give your body some more time, maybe tweak a couple small things, but you don't have to do these radical approaches. Like it's just important to know. Uh, I think for me that whenever somebody's like trying to share their numbers and talk about stuff, I'm always interested. Like, are you on your way up or on your way down? Are we still healing here? Or are we seeing this arc uh, of things going back the other direction? I also think it's really important to be honest with yourself. So I do see clients with very, very mild elevations in their ALT. And I'll find that some of them drink a lot. Um, Sometimes they do add some amount of carbs and they're like, oh, but it's so little, but it's showing in your blood work, right? So there are certain- Or this is an approved carb. This is the fruit. This is the honey, that kind of stuff. Right. So if they're eating carnivore 95% of the time, but the 5% is carbs, 
maybe that is too much. And if your blood sugar is in the 130, so whenever I see blood sugar in 120s, I ask them, are you eating anything other than meat? And if they are, then I say you have to cut that because your blood sugar is not in an area that I generally like. So that's where I think people just have to be honest. Is that 120 truly just because of meat? Or is it because you're having dark chocolate after every meal? And maybe you are passing your carb threshold, even though it's only 10 grams of carbs. Some people that are super insulogenic, either they have to fast or they have to cut even that very last bit of carbs. And if you are not adding any carbs, then that number I would be less concerned about. But if it is 120, 125 and you're eating carbs, then I would not be as okay with that number. And again, this is all that nuance. Right. Would you consider dairy to be one of those quote carbs? Like, would you count cheese as that or sour cream? If people are eating like a tremendous amount of dairy, that almost like a small amount of dairy, I wouldn't consider a carb. But in this nuance, like if you're eating a cup of sour cream a day and some cheese and some cream cheese, like at some point it does cross over into being, I mean, it is carbs in small amounts. And so if you're having large amounts of it, if you're having a half of cup of heavy whipping cream throughout the day and a bunch of sour cream and some other cheese, like that's probably contributing to some of the carbs as well. So I do think dairy is insulogenic more than just protein. And it's because if you think about it, why do we gain weight on dairy? Yes, it's very high calorically dense, but it's also more insulogenic. So we store more of it as fat. So yes, if somebody was 125, 130 milligrams per deciliter and their blood glucose levels, then yes, I would have them reduce the carb, um, the dairy. So when people work with us, the very first thing we do is tell us an average day of what yep. you eat. And then based on that, if they say, I want to work on my A1C, we will absolutely start reducing certain things that they're willing to change. I think for someone that's a heavy dairy eater to say you can't have any is too much of an extreme. You would have to pick dairies. Like I would have them ideally cut heavy cream or half and half because those do have some amounts of carbs. It's liquid, so it's easier. It hits your body much faster or your digestive system. Um, And it's these small little things that we can do to try changing it before we have to or time-restricted eating. Well, and like you said, be honest with yourself. You might think it's a splash of heavy cream, but it's a quarter cup in every one of your cups of coffee, right? Those things add up. I think that's where, for me, dairy adds up without me even realizing it. And then if I were to have a day where I'd attract my food, it's like, oh, that's a lot more. I wasn't using two tablespoons of feta. I used a third of a cup on that steak or, you know, same thing with sour cream. You know, it just, it adds up more than you realize. Yeah, I always notice that when I cut all dairy or basically have maybe an ounce of dairy a day, I get leaner just by cutting that out. But I like dairy too much and I don't care to be that much leaner, but I do notice it. I'm the same way. And that's why I can never cut it out fully. I also think that I like if I tell myself I'm going to cut out dairy fully, I just like panic and then eat too much or I start grazing like way too much on other things. I just have to be honest with myself and limit it to a condiment. Like I treat it as a condiment during my meal and not as a snack. I can't have it as a side. Like I just have to make sure that it's like this, whatever, like, you know, how just treat it as a condiment is how I try to focus on it. No, I think that's good. I think if you add it as a side or something, a small amount, um, yeah, that, that makes so much sense. And I think in this conversation, I hope therefore why it makes sense that you can actually gain weight on carnivore, because if you overeat calories, it does have an insulogenic effect. Right. And if you eat more calories, you can store it as fat. And so when people say you can't gain weight on carnivore, it's not true because you can. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also there's this misconception like, you know, you can't overeat a steak or you can't overeat. Yeah, it's, yes, you can. You can eat. I, I can eat way <laughs> too often, like maybe in one sitting, but like I can eat a lot. Like I could very easily, even being 100% strict carnivore, like it's super easy to um, just eat all day long. Like I don't ever have to be hungry to eat, uh, especially when you cross into the bacons and the cheeses and the, right. you know, uh, pork rinds and other things that are more snacky. Whenever I have carnivore snacks or any of the the beef jerky type of bags, those go so quickly for me. Yeah. And then I, yeah. So I, I mean, a bag of it. carnivore snacks is a pound, like a, a there. it's a pound and a half of dried meat and I can eat that and, and oh my just, gosh, can, I thought it was a pound. No, it's a pound and a half. Okay. I can eat that. And literally I could eat two bags in one sitting. I, I have right. done that, especially traveling. Like I've eaten two bags. So technically that's like three pounds of dried meat. And then I could easily go out to dinner later. Like it's just, but yet if you put three pounds of steak in front of me, like I probably 
I mean, I could eat it, but I wouldn't feel good afterwards, right? Um, and I could still then go have some dairy the same way that we do other things. So yeah, yeah. I no, it totally makes sense. There still is an element of like tracking and accountability. And it's not this, there's so much more context and nuance. Like it's not just this like magical thing where you can eat as much as you want and everything's going to regulate and heal. And, you know, it's not the answer that a lot of people want to hear that you have to track some things occasionally and you have to, um, make adjustments that you don't want to make sometimes. Like you might have to do, uh, incorporate some fasting to be able to, you know, lower, reverse your diabetes, uh, completely. So it's, it still is, it doesn't take away from the fact that it's extremely healing. And I think that's what we wanted to mention today. Yeah. I think we should go by symptoms. I mean, even in our nutritional therapy school, we always try to go by symptoms. We would have supplements in our mouth and then our nervous system would tell our brain, taste the flavors on your tongue. And then we would touch certain hotspots in the body and we would touch it before the supplement. And then we would put it after and the supplements were all made of food. So it's all herbal. But then we would touch the same part and say, do you have a reduction in pain? And if they did, then it's obvious the brain is saying, ooh, I like whatever's in this supplement. And in that same logic, our brains have, our our bodies have so much good biofeedback if we trust it. We should know that we're kind of diabetic or pre-diabetic. I know a lot of people say, I didn't even know that I was pre-diabetic. I'm sure they have certain amounts of symptoms that they just think, oh, this is my age now that I have pain or I just can't sleep as well as I'm getting older. And we think of the elderly nap that people always talk about, or they're going and heading towards diabetes. I know online, like there's a recent message uh, chain that I saw where somebody said, I believed in the lean mass hyper responder for cholesterol. I had high LDL and I trusted it that it's fine. And then I had a heart attack. And you see these one off messages that people then get so scared of the diet because of one anecdotal thing. And then I try to scroll and understand what was her diet or her markers like. And all she does is share her LDL. Like she shares none, no other. What was your HDL? What was your triglycerides? Were you eating only meat? And none of that context is shared, but you see all these people so scared by her data set, which is just the LDL. And it's like, I had, um, I, I forgot what type of heart attack she had. And I just wonder like really was it just the diet or was it build up for many 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 years or decades and it's that context we miss but or people make a judgment sorry people make a judgment they see your glucose and say wow that's high you must be unhealthy or they see somebody else's and say wow that's low you must be really healthy there's just so much more than that you can't there that you don't see Yeah. I mean, we work with people that a lot of people that have low blood pressure, they're not healthy, they're sick. And that's why they have low blood pressure. It's just their body's not able to balance their blood pressure. But we think low blood pressure, oh, you're healthy. So it's just, and even if you see, like, I'm telling you guys, if you see a blood glucose of 60s and low 70s on a carnivore diet, I'm sorry, they're under eating. After so many clients and patients, I I would super challenge that as to, I, I just think they're under eating. Yeah, I, I, I agree. From, again, personal anecdotes experience, the only way I can get my glucose under 85 is if I just don't eat yeah, for same. like 48 hours. <laughs> I mean, that's it. I just have to under eat. And, and then it might stay low for a few days if I don't eat a ton. That's the same thing with the ketones. The only way my ketones get above like 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5 is if I don't eat for 48 hours. Something happens at that 48 hour mark and like my glucose drops and my blood, my ketones spike. And then once I start eating again, they might stay up or might stay slightly in those ranges for a a day or two, but not if I, if I were to sit down and eat a a decent amount to break that fast, they instantly go back to where they were. Right. No, no. And I think that's a very normal, healthy response. Cool. I hope this was helpful, everybody. And just like knowing the context, I mean, listen, I shared my blood pressure the other day. Cause I happened to go to the doctor and like, I took a snapshot, like we're going to continue. People will share things that are a snapshot and I don't necessarily knock that. I might continue to share my glucose and my ketones occasionally, but just remember that it is a snapshot and it doesn't, it's not a full marker. When you get your own glucose tested, when you get your A1C tested, like just please remember to constantly be looking at things in the big picture Focus on how you feel, focus on your symptoms, um, look at the big picture of your health and don't go looking for problems that where there aren't any. Right. Right on. 
Yeah. Okay. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find Carnivore Cure in paperback, ebook, and audio on Amazon. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com. You can find Laura on Instagram at Laura East Bath. You can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits. You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura's Bath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain.